You know I'm right. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese. Joe, very festive in the holiday spirit. Got his Christmas decorations up. Love to see it. And we also have a great guest for them today, Joe, because as we've been saying, the number one team in baseball, as far as the, the rumor mill is concerned and the buzz, is the New York Mets. And we have somebody who is very plugged in with that team joining us on today's episode. Yes. So as of now, the Mets have dominated all the offseason hot stove headlines. We are still in a period of uncertainty. We're going to monitor, watch the situation with the CBA very, very closely. Uh, but we do have a special guest on us today. Uh, he is currently Mets beat writer for SI. He's worked previously at USA Today, and he's also the host of the Allow Me to Be Frank podcast. So uh, we're really, really happy to have him on, Pat Regazzo. Pat, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Uh, thanks so much for having me, and uh, hope you guys are doing well. Thanks, Pat. Great, great timing to have you on here with everything's going on with the Mets. But first, I want to talk about you a little bit here. What was your, your childhood like? When did you make the decision, hey, maybe I could pursue a career working in sports? And how did you ultimately figure out journalism would be the spot for you? Well, that's a great question. And uh, it's definitely like an open-ended one. It's not so, you know, so much so like a straight line. Um, I'm a local kid. I grew up in North Jersey in the suburbs. So I grew up on New York sports, whether it be SN, watching SNY, listening to WFAN, um, I grew up in a Mets house, a Giants house, so I've been following those teams very closely since I was a kid. And really, it took going to college and not really knowing what I wanted to do. Like, I always was obsessed with sports, particularly New York sports, knew more than the average fan, loved talking about it, but never really thought about pursuing a career in it, whether, you know, wasn't in love with writing as a kid and didn't really know how to pursue it. So, went into college as a accounting major and that didn't go well. So thankfully something I think kind of pushed me into this path a little bit, but um, you know, once accounting didn't work out, I changed to communications and public relations track. And at the time, you know, I was like, okay, I really want to work in sports. I want to work for a team, whether it be the giants or the jets, you know, Mets, Yankees, whatever it was, I just wanted to work in, in sports and I didn't know what I wanted to do, which a lot of people are like that. Of course, like everyone, you know, it's super competitive and everyone wants to work in sports. So um, for me, it took doing a couple, taking a couple journalism classes. I wasn't a journal, journalism major by any means. And, you know, a couple of journalism classes here and there, you know, learned a little bit how to write professionally, did a couple, did a local journalism internship uh, the summer I turned 21 when I was going into my senior year of college and really because I changed majors, it took me an extra semester to graduate. So the final summer, I was a college student. Um, now, I graduated almost exactly three years ago in December of 2018. But the summer of 2018, uh, I had one more semester left of school. I was working part time at my typical summer job, just laboring and, uh, you know, <laughs> building tents, delivering party uh, equipment to people's houses for graduations and whatnot. That's what I did typically as like a summer job in my town and growing up in the suburbs and um, got actually a part-time job working on promotions for Entercom, who now is Odyssey and they own WFAN, 1010 Winds, yep. 92.3, a bunch of the major stations, um, you know, in New York. 
So, you know, I grinded that summer. It wasn't really at first what, what I was expecting. Like I was expecting to do more with WFAN was my hope. And my boss, you know, I guess liked me and, you know, so I was a hard worker and she sent me out on the few remote live broadcasts that some of the big WFAN hosted that summer. So um, I went to Joe Torrey's golf outing with Joe and Evan at the time. Um, I went to Giants training camp on three separate days. One of the days was with Mike Francesa. This was during his initial comeback tour. Um, I went with Boomer and Geo another day to Giants training camp. And then I went with Maggie Gray and Chris Carlin. So after that, like, you know, I was interacting with the players because we we're having them on for interviews. Coach was Pat Shermer at the time. Eli Manning was near almost the tail end of his career. Saquon Barkley was a rookie. So that was just like that atmosphere at the time. I, and I was just helping set up and like being an extra set of hands and hanging out. But it was, you know, it's fantastic. And I just said, what do I need to do to get into this as a career? So really from there, I use that as kind of like an elevator pitch of, you know, I worked with them in the summer and just kind of focused on, you know, building connections and the relationships and building a network in the business. So um, from there, I started blogging for Mets Summarized online. They're probably the biggest Mets fan blog on the internet right now and have a ton of writers and they took a chance on me really like right when I was graduating college. So from there, I just started writing for them, you know, part-time and uh, wound up getting like a full-time job in sales while writing and building up a portfolio part-time, you know, having that goal in mind of wanting to break into the industry and, uh, you know, be able to do what I did with, uh, you know, with the fan hosts, uh, you know, going to Giants training camp and doing stuff like that. So just kind of took the ambitious path in that manner of just building connections and, you know, kind of progressing and trying to figure out how to get that first shot you know, I was doing a lot of freelance, did a couple of freelance stories for the New York Post, broke a little news, did some exclusive interviews, did stuff that people cared about and kind of got noticed, put my, main, my name a little bit on the map and then um, wound up getting laid off from my first sales job last fall, went into another sales job at the time, you know, thinking I would do the same model, be able to, you know, continue to build a portfolio until the right journalism job came along. And I got it out at that new job for six months. It wasn't really my cup of tea. Uh, it was a little more hands-on than my previous sales job and uh, didn't really have as much wiggle room to balance multiple careers. So by the time March rolled around uh, this previous March that we just had, I was like at a point where I was like, okay, a couple full-time opportunities almost happened at certain big outlets. Um, you know, they came close, didn't happen. And at that point I was just ready to, you know, take the step. I was like, all right, I'm a little tired here. I hit a wall either. I'm going to quit my sales job or I'm going to quit journalism because I just was so tired. I can't be doing both anymore. Yeah. So at that point, you know, I felt like I built up enough network and a big enough portfolio that I was like, all right, I'm going to bet on myself, fully commit to what I've been building and, and take a chance. And I rolled the dice. And fortunately enough, a month, I did a little freelance on my own for a little while, but then a month and a half later, uh, Sports Illustrated gave me the opportunity to launch their Mets site. And then I joined the beat on June 3rd and I've been doing it ever since. And it's been, you know, it's been a blast and, you know, it's part, you know, it was my dream job and definitely grateful for the experience and the opportunity. I've been loving every second of it and just trying not to take it for granted. That's all very impressive. Uh, what's impressive is you interning for WFAN because uh, my partner over here, Nick, he once upon a time interned for WFAN as well. So uh, we have two of the elite class of interns to ever walk uh, through those doors uh, on this podcast today with us, which is really, really uh, fun. I wanted to ask because you have a background in sales. Now, I 
went to school and I studied communications as well. And I know a lot of people who didn't necessarily take the journalism route, but uh, took other routes and kind of wanted to do the journalism thing too. So I know people who kind of worked in PR. I know people who did marketing and sales. Uh, so my question for you specifically is, what kind of skills do you think translate from a job like that, which doesn't really, um, a lot of people would not, not necessarily equate the two, although you do need overlapping skill sets. Uh, so what skill sets and what characteristics do you think for a job like that would translate into a writing job? That's a great question because really in life, sales is applied to anything you do in any industry, in any job. It's about networking. It's about getting to know people, building trust, building a relationship. And, um, you know, thankfully I was around a lot of people who were, you know, established in sales at the time. And I saw the relationships they had and we'd have a lot of, when I, particularly my first job was working for Sony. I was very lucky there. My friend's father was uh, a manager on a new team at Sony in Paramus, New Jersey. And, um, you know, that was my first sales job out of college, first, first full-time entry-level job. And they don't hire kids like in their early twenties. Like it just was more of an older, more family-like uh, people have been there for 20, multiple decades, 20 years, 30 years. And, um, you know, I really got to learn the corporate professional world at the time and go on several business trips and go to events and, um, you know, and they really take care of you there, which was fun. So uh, you just go and you kind of schmooze and you get to know people and see how people operate in that industry. And, and, and of course, like as a journalist and in, in reporting and writing, you got to do the same thing. I mean, Winter meetings is, you know, one of the annual events that a lot of people go to in MLB. And I was supposed to go to Orlando uh, last week for it. And unfortunately, it was canceled. So I haven't gotten to experience that yet. But it's the same type of deal. Like I, I went uh, with Sony like the third week on the job to Orlando for a big annual sales conference that year. And, uh, you know, it's so many people there. And it's just like it, with the GM meetings, it's like agents, execs, uh, GMs, whoever it is, who you're meeting face to face and you're getting to know them there. So that's definitely something that I guess I would take from my sales experience into this, you know, particular experience, because it does definitely translate. There's a lot of similarities there and uh, it's a huge, huge portion of the. It's just like looking at teams and being in the clubhouse, the dugout, getting to know the players and coaches and manager and, and just having them, you know, meet you and get to know you on a personal level, because that's how you build the trust. And that's when they're really going to want to tell you things. So that's a huge part of the job. And it's definitely one of my favorite parts of the job and, and something I value very, uh, you know, very highly. Yeah. And it's incredible that, you know, the, being able to speak and know that networking, that's, that's the key. And, you know, that it, it kind of translates across all different platforms. And I'm guessing this came about through networking, but how did you and Frank the Take Fleming hook up and how'd you end up launching his podcast? That's another fantastic question. So I'm <laughs> glad you guys brought up Frank. He's the king. Um, really, like I knew who he was because he was a Mets fan. And he got famous from being on, uh, you know, that that rant on the news and then Barstool picked him up and he was still part time, at you know, at the time, but he had a big fan base. And more so like when I went back to school after I interned at the fan or at Entercom that summer, I went back to school and, and was hell bent connecting the people in the business as possible, getting to know them. So me and Frank had a long conversation on the phone and it wasn't really like formal or anything, but it was just getting to know each other a little bit. And lo and behold, a couple of months later, he was looking to, you know, he was doing an independent podcast. He still doesn't necessarily really have a barstool podcast right now, even though like now he's full time and he's blowing up even more, but 
he was looking for a co-host and I had talked to him in the past and had a little experience was building a career out in a niche. And we started doing the podcast together and it was a good fit, obviously, because the Mets connection. And um, we started doing the podcast together in April of 2019. And we've been doing it ever since once a week. And uh, Frank's great. He's definitely an interesting character and he's got a cult fanship and following. So it's a lot of fun doing that with him. Yeah, and he he definitely saw this Mets collapse happening this past season. That's for sure. No doubt about that. I He was on a show, another show I was on with our friend, Johnny V, Johnny V TV. Mets were in first place around, I want to say, May or so. And he came on. He said the Mets are going to barely win any games the rest of the year. And lo and behold, Frank was right. So Yeah, Fr- Frank was right campaign. And, you know, a lot of people were right. And I was covering that team from June on. and. Uh, you know, they were in first place for 103 days. And um, really, for me, it was when they lost to Grom and Lindor simultaneously, and they just weren't able to recover from that. Uh, but, at, you know, from the day of the trade trade deadline on, they just, you know, they took a swan dive in the standings. And really, for the last two months on the job, they weren't winning many games. And it was definitely hard to cover a team like that when, you know, trying to keep fans and readers invested. And, uh, you know, everyone's grumpy. Obviously, the Mets fans want to see their team, you know, make the playoffs every year. And, and have a legitimate shot at a title. And, you know, things were good in the first half, even though they were, you know, maybe winning behind smoke and mirrors with some of the replacement players and they had great pitching and then it didn't hold up in the second half and the offense never came around and in the end, uh, you know, the off between the offense not coming around and Jacob deGrom getting hurt and Lindor getting hurt, it just was too much for them to survive. And uh, they fell apart, of course. So it's definitely interesting to kind of experience both aspects of a winning and losing team and how, you know, the atmosphere is and how it changes so yeah, Frank, Frank's a, you know, he's notorious for being pessimistic about the Mets and I mean, I don't blame him. I mean, the last 35, 36 years have been tough to be a Mets fan. So, um, you know, in a way, I guess he did see it coming and uh, I have to say Frank was right, but then, you know, he was right up until the point of black Friday where Steve Cohen uh, said, you know what, I'm flipping the script and him and Billy Epler went to work and spent $254 million on, four free agents and they made the big splash with Max Scherzer while they were also trying to get Kevin Gosman at the same time as Scherzer and put both of them in the rotation with Jacob deGrom, which would have been great. Um, and, and I'm sure like from what it tells me from my perspective, I mean, this is pure speculation, but it tells me that the Mets obviously aren't done and they're not done adding a, you know, a big top end starter, um, you know, whether it be through free agency or trade. I mean, there's not many free agents out there left to make a big splash on a rotation, I believe. Carlos Rodon's really the only big name starter left and he comes along with some injury history and risk there. So I actually think that they'd probably be wiser pursuing a trade for a starter, but yeah, I mean, the Mets are showing that they mean business. It's created a lot of buzz around the team. The fans are happy and uh, you know, Steve Cohen wants to win and, and this is New York and you should kind of take it that way each year, you know, and, and it seems like this is probably going to be a pretty exciting team to cover next season. So I'm, I'm definitely, uh, you know, I'm ready to, to take take in year two and hopefully that you know that buzz will remain and the team will live up to expectations yeah and we're, we're going to talk about a lot of that momentarily because uh, obviously that's what the main news is these days in the baseball world but i wanted to ask you obviously you launched everything with sports illustrated this year but you were not there for opening day so for you was it challenging uh to make connections to play catch up and, you know, make a relationship or did you actually benefit from the fact that, you know, all you guys were really just over zoom for the most part in the early of the season. And it was very easy for you to, to catch up due to that. 
Fortunately, I didn't have to do too much catching up because I did write for Mets Marais for a number of years and I followed the Mets, uh, you know, since I was a kid. So knew everything there is, you know, to know about the team. And obviously the biggest challenge I think was that we didn't have, um, you know, the level of access, like we weren't allowed in the clubhouse this year because of COVID rules. So it's hard to get to know the players when you can't be in the clubhouse and, you know, you only get to interact with them a little bit on the field before the games and, you know, they're able to avoid you more often than not when you're not in the clubhouse. So that aspect was tough, but I guess I'm fortunate for the Zoom uh, part of things because it kind of helped ease my transition. And, you know, it's a little nerve wracking to be able to ask questions, you know, and get to know these guys. So Zoom kind of helps that a little bit. And then also coming from an industry where, um, or a situation where I was doing this part-time for a while. So the virtual aspect is, you know, is a pr pretty much a huge reason why I'm here, you know, to be able to take advantage of that as much as possible. And even in the COVID days where, you know, sports weren't going on for a number of months. And I was just kind of getting as many interviews as possible because, you know, people didn't really have things to do at the time. So uh, it's just about kind of adjusting, adapting and taking advantage of the situation. Um, and then, yeah, at the same time, like I came into the season and it was hard to, you know, to make that, you know, build those relationships, you know, when you don't, you're not in the clubhouse. So that was a challenge, but it's something that I'm hoping changes next year and moving forward that they give it back to us. And, um, you know, it's definitely one of my main goals right now is to build as much trust and relationships as possible with the players and coaches and then whoever the new manager is. So Luis Rojas actually was probably the one who I grew the closest with um, because he always gave us the time of day in person, uh, you know, on the field before every game. And he was a real nice guy. So, um, you know, got to know him a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of just a foundation of, of, you know, hopefully what's to come, you know, in my career and in this line of work, because, uh, you know, that is a really, really big important area of you know of the job and kind of progressing in the role that that I'm currently in so I don't I'm not going to frame this as like you know your best people to, to go to like as a source no, we're not going to do that but if you're let's say you're writing a you know very positive piece or like remembering this something in Mets history or whatever is there a particular players that you're looking to to go to to get a good quote because you know hey, they're a large personality they're willing to speak and you know they'll help my article it just all kind of depends, I guess, if, if it's relative to the person you're writing about, like what's their connection? Do they have any familiarity or relationship there? And you kind of just, uh, you know, have to pinpoint and identify that. And, and, and if the person fits in with the story, then, you know, you go up, you either ask PR to help you, you know, facilitate it, which they're usually pretty good about that. Or you go up to the player before the game and say, hey, do you have a second? Can you talk about this? And usually they're pretty receptive if it's, if it's something that hits home for them. So Nobody yet, I would say specifically who I would pinpoint to go to, but yeah, that's, that's typically how things work. Like you look, all right, who, what's relevant, you know, what, who, where do the dots connect with this story or whatever information I'm trying to find out. And then you kind of, you know, you identify that you do digging, you do research, you talk to people and uh, that's just kind of the way you got to go about it. So it's a lot of work, but it's like, you, you know, it's very rewarding in the end. And uh, it's just, you know, all part of like, kind of how these things come together and um yeah it's definitely something that i that i kind of focus on i guess if i'm doing a story that's kind of like that in that way and something that we usually ask in the follow-up here is with the rise of social media with the rise of twitter and, and other means to be able to get news and whatever information you're sitting on out there as a writer how do you juggle the I'm going to get the piece of information news out there for myself, for the brand, so that Mets fans and, and other people out there can trust me 
or sitting on something like that and waiting for your editors and ultimately your boss to say, no, 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 no. This is something that we want to get out, sit on it, wait for it, write about it, come back to us in half hour, hour, you know, later in the day, whatever. So how do you juggle uh, news when, when that uh, situation comes across your way? For me, like I'm, I'm pretty lucky to where my editors and my bosses let me kind of do my thing and, uh, you know, treat me more as a partner, which a lot of outlets are more so collaborating with the editors and the team there. So uh, I, I guess in a way, the big thing about reporting and, and putting information out there is one, like I know now, like I need to be super careful about what I say. And, and if you're putting something out there, you better be right. I mean, I've always like known that and, and you know, kind of like, you know, done that in my career because about building credibility, like you can't be wrong because then people won't trust you. They won't go to you for information. So for me, as I like build connections in the industry and whatnot, like it's about sharing information, I guess, with, you know, certain people who I know or trust and, and asking things around and doing digging. In. And if multiple people are confirming what I'm hearing and it's people who I trust, people who would be in the know, you know, close to the situation, then that's when I know that I can put it out there. Like, for example, with the Max Scherzer report I had last week that he prefers Buck Showalter to be the Mets next manager, I heard that and, I, and then I had to do some digging. I had to go to work and, and figure out, you know, who else is hearing this? Is this accurate? Can I put this out there? And there are a lot of times we'll hear things from someone and someone, even if it's someone who I trust, like I have to do digging. And if I can't get confirmation, then I'm not going to put it out there just because what I say, uh, you know, gets around, like people read it, uh, you know, whether it be from the team, the fan, whoever it is. And like, again, like you better write because especially right now, it's someone who's, you know, just starting out, like this is how I'm building credibility. So there's a thing was, it was important. And, you know, I, I just had to double and check that it was accurate before I put it out there. And then, you know, once I did it, obviously a lot of attention, but at that point, like I was mentioning to actually a colleague earlier today that I couldn't be able to live with myself if I just heard it from somebody, one person and put it out there and wasn't sure if it was right or not because of how much attention it got. Like, even if it turned out to be right, if I didn't do the, take the proper steps to verify it and it's something that like kind of would, you know, it eats at you internally. Like you just, it'll make you nervous. Like you won't be sleeping at night, basically. Like I, I felt good about it, and especially like going on, uh, I went on Boomer and Geo on Thursday to talk about it as well. And they asked me like how confident I am that uh, one, that Showalter is going to be hired and two, that you know, people I was hearing this from, you know, were correct. And, and at that point, you know, I had done, you know, the proper, uh, the proper steps and, and directions to, you know, to verify that fortunately. So obviously very confident with that report. Um, you know, that that's accurate. And fortunately enough, I got confirmation from Andy Martino a couple hours after I put it out there as well, that he's hearing the same thing. And, and he credited me for being first, but yeah, again, everybody, this is a business where everyone wants to be first. Everyone wants to put out that valuable information. That's what the fans care about, but you got to be right. Cause it's all about credibility and ethics. And uh, there are certain, a number of things that I've heard about and I'm not allowed to put it out there every time because uh, at the end of the day, one has a job and the people telling you this sometimes are putting their necks on the line, their reputations. So um, yeah, again, like you just gotta, you gotta make sure you do it the right way. And that's also how you build trust too. So that's, it's all just kind of part of the process that, uh, that I've been learning as I go on, go along, but yeah, that's kind of the right way to, uh, to take something like that, uh, especially with that has the kind of magnitude and reach that, uh, you know, that you're putting out there, such as like big scoops and stuff like that and whatnot. Yeah, and you had to feel good that everyone was tweeting and sourcing you there. So that was big for you, um, you know, with that. But then more just in general, since you started with your, your Mets beat, 
how much has your social media following grown? And also, where do you fall on the, the range of like, I'm going to answer everybody versus I'm going to ignore people? Because we've had bets reporters on and other beer reporters and some just said, I don't I ignore that stuff. Others have said, well, I use it. I mean, I know you did a whole Q&A, I think, uh, or you do Q&As. I know I had tweeted you once. I said uh, two months back, is Carlos Beltran going to make his debut uh, managing this yeah. year? You actually put, put that in your article, so that was appreciated. But, you know, to me, it seems like you're very more of an interactive beat reporter than others. But general for you, how much has your social media presence changed since starting the Mets beat? Well, dating back to last year at this time, I was probably at like 1,500 followers maybe. And I was fortunate enough to get the DJ LeMayhew contract scoop before anyone else and got credited by Jeff Passan. That was last January, actually. So I got credited by Passan and the New York Post and a couple other places. So that helped my credibility a lot and up my followers. But since then, and particularly since, since I joined the beat in June, I got verified like about a month later on Twitter. I got the blue check and uh, my following has just kind of been progressively growing ever since. Um, I there's certain points where it grows like, before the trade deadline, I was breaking rumors and, you know, the, obviously the team like reporting on what I heard from the team and covering them. So the following grows there. And then the off season where everyone's, you know, caught up in the rumors, the signings, the trades and everything else. And uh, you know, it's kind of helped in a big way. So yeah, like a year ago I was at 1500 and now I'm at almost 7,500 and um, particularly like I hit 6,000 followers on Thanksgiving Eve and now I'm up to 70, almost 7,500. So that's like the fastest growth I've ever seen. And part of that's from the Scherzer thing. And part of it's also just from like writing about the team, covering things, reporting things I'm hearing uh, or others are reporting. And of course, giving them the proper accreditation and also being interactive. So we say about, uh, you know, some colleagues not being as interactive and engaging. It's because uh, there's a lot of negativity, of course, like some of it's positive. Some people are great. Some people will attack you personally for no reason. Uh, they're grumpy about the team not doing well or not doing the moves that making the moves they want, not doing anything. Luckily, the Mets fans are in a good mood since they, you know, they were very, uh, you know, they kicked things into higher gear right before the lockout happened. So um, things are pretty good right now. And I, I do like doing those Q&As and mailbags. But at the same time, you can't always read all the replies to your tweets because <laughs> chances are, you know, almost 100 percent of the time that it's not going to be all positive. So you know, they're choosing or we mean for no reason. So. One, it's, you know, you can't take that stuff, you know, to heart, but two, it's also not healthy to read and interact as much as you possibly can. But at the same time, like I do try and engage with, you know, with some of the fans and, and uh, you know, build a relationship with them as well, because they're the consumer at the end of the day. They're the reason why we're in these jobs and positions because people care about it. So it's kind of the way I look at it, I guess. Um, but yeah, but the engagement has been good and, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate for it. And, you know, as the following grows, the engagement grows and everything, it's, uh, it's definitely enjoyable. Sometimes it can be overwhelming at least and too much to even keep up with, but especially like leading up to when they, they signed Scherzer and when they was making those other moves, like, and the rumors and whatnot, like the engagement, like I would put a tweet out there or whatever it was. And, and like, you'd have like a hundred likes in like 30 seconds. And I'm like, Whoa, like, this is, you know, this is crazy how much people care about it. But like, how was that had, Sunday night for you where it was like, Oh, Scherzer's close. You probably sit up to like four o'clock in the morning <laughs> waiting for nothing. I stayed up till almost one and waiting for nothing. And, um, you know, at that point until about seven o'clock at that night, I didn't think they had a legitimate shot to get Scherzer. 
But yeah, then I was hearing from everyone who I talked to who works in baseball saying the same thing that it looks like they're going to wind up signing him, that he's not going to pull a Trevor Bauer and dupe them. And it wasn't just about leverage. So that was a fun two between that Sunday and Monday with the whole shirt thing. And um, yeah, just uh, very fortunate that that happened. And, uh, you know, it drew, you know, the fans in, the readers and everything else and up the engagement of my following and everything. So yeah, it's definitely a lot of fun to cover and be involved in that stuff. And at the same time, it can kind of be exhausting at, at, at you know, on, on the other hand. So yeah, you've got to enjoy it and, you know, take it as it comes. You know, Mets Twitter is going to be pretty good to, to you guys for now. Um, until yeah. we get to opening day and you post the lineup and you see Robinson Cano batting third at second base, you're going to get so many negative replies as you should. Uh we don't know when that's going to be. We don't know when spring training is going to be at the CBA, but, you know, I'm going to give you the opportunity here. Let's say you get the, you know, the second question at the press conference to Cano. We know Steve Gettle was at the first question. What are you going to ask this guy? What, what, what would you ask him? Because I think there's so many questions here as far as, you know, what is he going to do with his teammates? And personally, I don't think he's got anything left physically that he should be on this roster, let alone starting, which he will. Uh, but what would you, what would you kind of ask him? Well, first off, I don't think he'll be playing second base. I, if they add a DH to the, N, to the NL, which it sounds like they're probably going to depending on the new CBA, but um, I think he'll be the DH and I don't think he'll be batting third, but uh, honestly, who knows? Um, I don't know. I guess I just ask him about what he's learned, you know, from this past experience, he missed the whole year. I mean, that's obviously a tough question to ask. And it's something that, someone in my position just starting out, like I'm not, you know, I'm just starting to get comfortable into asking kind of tough questions like that. And, you know, there's a certain way to deliver it. So just asking like, you know, what he, what he can take away from, you know, what happened and how he's, you know, moving forward with it and how he addressed his teammates and uh, you know, maybe like also like why he thinks he still has, you know, gas left in the tank. I mean, they owe him $40 million over the next two years. So he's going to get a chance to be in this lineup this year, especially if he could still hit. I mean, they need offense, so it would obviously help them out. But yeah, just kind of along the lines of what I'd like to learn from him from the first time he speaks. And I'm not sure he's going to have a press conference, but maybe he will. Hopefully he does. And uh, yeah, those, those are probably the big takeaways that I'd like to know from him. Um, you know, basically, you know, coming back this year after a year of suspension from PEDs. Fair enough. Yeah. I think that's, that's what most people want to know. So I'm interested to hear what your routine is when we're going to the ballpark, what time are you getting there? And, you know, obviously things are different with some physical limitations kind of loosened towards the end of the season, but kind of walk us through your, your whole day there. And really I'm most interested in knowing, you know, what is your, your go-to meal, which stadiums have the best food? Um, and then are you snacking during the game? And if so, what do you, what do you have? Oh, I love that. Um, so I live in Hoboken, New Jersey, city across the river from, uh, from New York. Um, so my commutes, you know, it's, it's not bad. It's, uh, you know, I live, you know, pretty close to the train station in Hoboken. So hop on the 33rd path, go all the way to 33rd street, walk eight minutes to Bryant park and hop on the seven line train, uh, from the subway from there. So that's about an hour commute total, uh, between the path and the subway. So usually leave between two and two thirty. hop on the path, get to New York, get to Bryant park. Um, and then take the subway. So I'll usually shoot to be at city field around like three 30. If it's a seven, 10 game, um, the gate, I think for the media typically opens at like three or three fifteen. So get there around three 30, 
um, go drop my stuff off in the press box, usually try and sit in the same spot in the front row, um, usually around seat 16 or so, because that's, in my opinion, that's one of the best views, um, almost right behind home plate. So I put my stuff down, go down to the field. Uh, my other colleagues are usually there already. They get there you know, early, and a lot of them live in the city, so it's a shorter commute for them. So just kind of talk among, you know, fellow people on the beat or what other reporters are there, people I know, people I don't know. And then obviously the players are coming out to warm up, managers out there, you know, you're, you're just talking, having conversations. Maybe there's people you need to talk to for a story. Maybe there's people you want to talk to to build a relationship. So you kind of just pursue, uh, you know, different avenues and elements, uh, you know, while you're down there. And a lot of it's just a lot of hanging out and downtime and everything. And it's, less time in front of a computer screen, which is nice. It's a nice little break, which is why I like my commute too. you know, going on public transportation, kind of just relax. And it's a little adventure, especially in the summer. So, you know, you hang out in the dugout, you hang out in front of the dugout. Uh, you try and talk to as many people as possible. And uh, usually around like four o'clock or four 30, the manager speaks to the daily press conference. So if you're down on the field, you're on zoom on your phone, you're asking questions or, and then you're live tweeting as well. Or if you're up in the press box, you're, you know, you're reporting on what you hear from the manager, you're asking questions and you're tweeting and then, you know, potentially writing a story if there's something big, but yeah, I mean, sometimes it's like, you'll hear something that's newsworthy and you're down on the field. So you're tweeting about it. And then um, usually around like five 30 or six, depending on what's going on that day, you'll head back up to the press box. Uh, you know, the game's getting closer to start time. Uh, you know, you'll start writing your first story based off that press conference. If there's anything, you know, any updates, injuries or news or roster moves, whatever it is, transactions write your first story then usually you'll eat dinner around you know almost start a game time and uh for me like last year like i just like to save money since i'm you know just starting out so ideally like i'll be taking last night's leftovers to the game uh in a lunchbox because it's less work for me or sometimes like i'll buy food there so media cafeteria or whatever they're serving that night uh mets have a concourse in their stadium with some good places to eat and unfortunately didn't get to explore it as much as I would have liked to last season. So that's definitely something that's on my list this year to do. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I like, uh, I like some of the pizza they have. I like uh, sometimes I'll just get like normal ballpark food though, like tenders and fries, but that stuff kind of gets old. So right now I actually don't have a favorite place to eat in city field, but there are some really good places. Uh, Shake Shack. I love, we have one in Hoboken. So that's a big one, but of course it always, the lines are pretty packed at city field. The fans get there early a lot. Like, some of the fans get there at like five o'clock, four thirty, like even when I'm getting there sometimes. So that happens. You eat dinner, you know, hopefully you're done with your first story for the night. And then, you know, the game starts, you're following it. Either you're working on another story simultaneously or you're live tweeting the game, you know, looking for angles, game stories, whatever it may be, uh, you know, and writing it as it goes along. And then after the game ends, you got press conferences usually uh, now they're on zoom. So it'll be the manager and then it'll be two or three players. So you're live tweeting that you're asking questions. And then you're writing a story, whether you've finished your story already for the game or for whatever happened in the game, say Jeff McNeil hit a game winning home run in the eighth inning. So that's what your story is going to be about. Um, you know, you put it out there as soon as possible. And then after the press conferences, you go back and you update it with quotes and hopefully out of there by 11, 1130, take the, take the subway back 30 minutes. And then the path trains don't really run great at night uh, going back to, you know, from 33rd to, to Hoboken. So usually there's like a few times, like 1135, 1210, um, 1245, like are the three time slots that I'm trying to make. Usually make like the 1210 on a good night. So usually get home to my place at like 1245 at night, going to bed by like one. So 
Um, it's always a late night. And then the next day you're waking up at nine, 10 in the morning, trying to get seven, eight hours and uh, do it all over again, get up, go to the gym, uh, maybe work on a story, uh, pack lunch or pack dinner, I should say, eat lunch and, uh, and then head back out there and do it again. So that's why, uh, you know, doing a day game after a night game is tough because you're working late and then you got to wake up early to the ballpark. And fortunately, I don't have to do that that often, but yeah, it's a different element. You become a bit of a night owl, almost an insomniac during the season. So trying to uh, fix my sleep schedule a little bit in this off season, but never been a morning person. So I feel like this job is kind of perfect for me. So I like sleeping in and then you know, going to the gym and then my day started usually. Perfect. Just like me, I always sleep in. Uh, have something to mention though, because last year uh, or this past season, uh, I went to a, my token Mets game that my friend usually brings me to. And in this case, it was Nick this year and uh, got to take advantage of the Delta Sky Club, which is really, really nice eat really well there didn't get to wait on any shake lines though thankfully and the game that we ended up watching was the game that they played against the braves where conforta uh had to throw in right field at home plate at the end of the game and little did we know that the atlanta Braves are going to win the world series so it does not like talking about that so we'll quickly move on hoboken spectacular i want to ask you your favorite places to go out Favorite places to go out? That's a great question. Um, Wicked Wolf is obviously a big one. Mills Tavern, um, Pig and Parrot, Green Rock, uh, Texas, Arizona. Like, those are the big ones, especially living downtown right, right near the action. Um, there's some good places uptown, though, like smaller places like Finnegan's. And, um, Finnegan's is a gem. Their wings yeah. are spectacular. Yeah. My friends just have they, – they moved into an apartment that's right over there. They are literally at Finnegan's, like, at least once a week. So they're there. I've been going there a lot more. Yeah, I really like it. And then there's obviously great, great places to eat too. Otto Strada and, um, you know, Cafe Melina, shout out to them. And uh, there's, yeah, Sorolina, great one. There's a lot of great Italian, of course, um, that, you know, I like to indulge in. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun being here, especially at, at, you know, being in my mid-20s. Yeah, no, it's a great area over there. I'm really pumped for all my friends who ended up moving out there. I always have to ask because... They, they kind of left me here. So Nick and I are still on Staten Island, right? So we're not too far, right? I'm literally I'm thinking, a drive away. I'm thinking that the uh, the two of you guys are going to be hitting Hoboken pretty hard this uh, spring before <laughs> Pat goes back to City Field. Oh, boy. That's maybe, maybe, maybe yeah. NFL maybe. Sunday. Yeah, NFL Sunday is great here, especially uh, I, Black Bear is really good for NFL Sunday, actually. That's where I like to uh, I like to go. So once baseball season ends, I can go there more often on Sundays and um, you know, obviously picking parrots fun on Sunday and wicked wolf, which is wicked wolf's hard to get into, uh, for football Sunday, but when you do, it's a fun time. And, uh, yes, yeah, it is. uh, it's expensive living here, but it's, but it's a lot of fun. I definitely can't complain about, you know, having stuff to do at all times, you know, whenever I'm, you know, in the mood to, you know, go out and whatnot. Now, are one of you, are you one of those Hoboken people who does the shore thing? Cause I do the shore thing. That's not really Nick's, uh, MO over there. But uh, I actually do have an interesting story. So I, I guess you could say I'm a DJ's regular, right? <laughs> so friends with Fun Anthony, friends with all those those people down there. And I mean, I really love all the, those other places to go. Like Leggett's is fun. Headliner's fun. My friends love Parker House. So we kind of do a good job in kind of going all over the place when we're down there. Osprey. Um, Osprey is cool. Yeah. I, but obviously DJ's has my heart. DJ's is the Mecca. Uh, 
I, uh, so I was there with one of my friends earlier in the summer and we ended up knowing some people and long story short, got in at a much faster time than a lot of other people there. And that was the night that all the, uh, the barstool people ended up coming in there to hang out. Okay. So we saw Rico in there. We saw Glenny, we saw Rhea. Um, yeah. So I, I, I know they have the, the connection to tank, right? So yep. what is your relationship like with like the closer barstool employees and people uh, who are closer with the tank? And, and obviously a lot of them, including KFC are huge Mets fans, right? So does that kind of bleed over, you know, do they kind of, you know, reach out for certain things and you be friends with them. Do you have a relationship with them? Do you go out with them? Just curious. I don't go out with them, but I know Clem very well now over the past few years. And I know another one. Yeah. I know Stephen Che pretty well. Um, I know a couple of their producers. Uh, I actually don't know too many people beyond that. I mean, I actually saw Billy football downtown in Hoboken this morning and he lives around there around me actually. So I saw him across the street, but I didn't go up to him. I, he was walking with a, a lady friend, I guess who may have been his sister actually, cause they looked a lot alike, but um, yeah, I just like, I know Doug's through Frank, like Clem's a really good guy, obviously Che. Um, so yeah. So I, I do see them around sometimes or they'll come on the podcast. So I, I have a good relationship with them. I don't know KFC. I know who he is obviously, but I don't know him. Um, and the other thing I wanted to add about Belmar, my rental house was on main street in Belmar last summer. So um, I was near DJs near bar a wow. uh, went to Osprey a lot and uh, like Parker house. Cause uh, my, some of my other friends had houses like right around the corner from Osprey. So that was usually the typical spot. What's week. the commute to and, city uh, field like from, from uh, Delmar? <laughs> well, Delmar. fortunately, if it's, it's miserable I- now, it's, it's got to be more miserable, right? It's going to be two and a half hours. Yeah, no, fortunately, um, I didn't travel with the team last season. So uh, like every other week, they'd be on the road. So I'd be able to go down the shore and work remotely and then, you know, have a bit of a social life, which that was my biggest concern going to this full time is that I wouldn't be able to. But, you know, luckily, I'm able to make my own schedule and still was covering the team every single day and yeah. having a little bit of balance there. So it was a blast having a shore house. It's just kind of a chore going from, you know, Hoboken to you know, to down the shore, which is about an hour and change. And, um, you know, it was fun and fun experience. I'm grateful. I, I, ha- I was able to balance and had, you know, that flexibility there to do so. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, commuting from the shore though to city field would not be fun and driving to city field is not fun. So uh, thankfully I've not had to do that. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, the two Italian guys here heading down the shore this summer, perhaps Yeah, uh, could be interesting, but Pat, I wanted to ask you, you kind of touched on this earlier, maybe when you, you said you left, you left sales to go full-time in journalism, but what was your, you know, um, right moment? So what we mean by that is maybe you're at a crossroads or something, somebody is telling you, listen, Pat, you can't do this. You got to do it this way. It's the only way it's going to work. And then you said, you know what, I'm going to do it my way. And ultimately you are going to see why it is that I'm right. Well, really, it just goes back to when I did quit my sales job and, you know, I was I was in a position where I could, you know, I could pursue this and I'm very relentless, persistent, and I don't care about being told no or being ghosted because that's just part of it even now. But at that point, I was like, you know, I've worked really hard to get here. I built up enough portfolio, enough, you know, connections, and uh, I'm going to take a chance on myself. And I guess it was when SI brought me on a month and a half later, and that was, you know, a quick time, uh, you know, to find something. Uh, where I was just like, you know, when I was in that sales job and I was like, all right, it's not working out, like trying to find the perfect job. So I'm just going to go out and take it myself because no one's giving it to me. So 
um, you know, that's what I did. And then, yeah, of course, SI giving me the opportunity and joining the Mets beat was when I was like, all right, like this is happening and uh, it's go time. This is what I've wanted and what I've been working towards. Yeah, it certainly has worked out for you. All right, last question for me here. Are the Mets going to sign Chris Bryant? That's a great <laughs> question. And the Mets payroll is already around $270 million. Um, I think Javier Baez was a better fit, obviously, than, uh, than Bryant considering the position he plays and the relationship with Lindor. And, you know, he was a star here. Baez was their best player in the, you know, down the stretch of the season. So from what I heard, the Mets offered Baez 125 mil and they wouldn't go above that. And he took 140 mil plus the opt out after the second season to go to the Tigers and also be able to play shortstop. So talked to a lot of agents and some execs around the league who told me basically anything's possible with Steve Cohen. If he wants Bryant, he'll get Bryant. Like, don't underestimate him. Like, he's doing whatever it takes to win. So, if they want him, they'll get him. And they already negotiated with Scott Boris earlier in the offseason to get Scherzer. So, Bryant, I think, to me, would be that last piece to make them an offensive juggernaut. But he doesn't necessarily fit defensively. Like, I know he's versatile, plays third base, plays the outfield. But he's not really very good defensively at any of those positions. Um, and the Mets just hired – or they just signed Eduardo Escobar, who – made it known in his introductory press conference, he's more comfortable playing third base. He can play second, but he's more comfortable playing third. So by signing Bryant and pushing Escobar to second base, weakens you up the middle, I think. And, and it's putting a guy, you know, it's putting guys kind of out of position. And in the same breath, um, the Mets have a couple top prospect infielders coming up in the next year or two uh, that they don't necessarily want to block. You got Brett Beatty, you got Mark Vientos, who's the closest out of, out of the trio. And then Ronnie Mauricio, who's a couple of years away. Um, you know, who could also potentially play third at some point. So I think the Escobar signing made a lot of sense. Um, now with Bryant, obviously like the Mets, you know, struggled offensively last year. So Bryant would solidify them as a, you know, an offensive powerhouse, which is good. But at the same time, the Mets have holes still, they have, they need another top starter in the rotation. They need multiple relievers. They need depth. So by signing Bryant, their payroll will, will be likely around almost 300 mil with moves still left to be made on the pitching staff. And, you know, you need to have strong pitching to go anywhere in this game right now. And, and I think that's going to be their priority, kind of exploring opportunities there. But Billy Epler said to us that they're more so just being opportunistic about position players moving forward. And they don't want to hurt their long-term World Series odds by gaining, you know, you know, some ground in the short term. And that would probably be by signing Bryant. So I think if the Mets can get a deal done with him, maybe five years, 125 mil, the same 125 they offered Baez, maybe they wind up doing it if Cohen really wants him. But at the same time, that means they're going to blow past 300 mil on their payroll because they do need to make moves on the pitching staff. It's not complete team by any means. I mean, they did a lot of stuff before the lockout, but there's still definitely work to be done. So why don't they go get um, Kenley Jansen? I mean, it seems like nobody wants him for some reason. I don't know. I need a closer. Yeah. I mean, that would be a good pickup, but I don't really see it. I don't see him leaving the Dodgers, but also you never know. I mean, it's a similar situation with Freddie Freeman that, People don't see him leaving the Braves, but if they're not willing to meet his price, like he might wind up going elsewhere, whether it be the Yankees or the Dodgers or whoever else. So you never know because it is a business at the end of the day. I mean, I thought Baez was going to come back, but after the Mets made some of those other moves, it was just kind of, uh, you know, indicated that there was going to be a split there because there was other op better opportunities out there for, for Baez from the business aspect. And you saw it with uh, Aaron Loop. You saw it with Noah Syndergaard, like, they got more money elsewhere and they left when, you know, you thought that they'd probably be back with the team. And that's also another aspect to where the Mets lost 85 games last year and they had a number of talented free agents, uh, you know, that hit the open market. And 
Um, if they were to retain all of them, like a lot of the fans wanted, they'd essentially be bringing back the same losing team that they had and thinking right. that, you know, running it back and thinking that something was going to be different and you just can't operate that way. So I think they're taking it, you know, in the right way right now of adding new guys and fixing the clubhouse culture and impact, you know, acquisitions. So even though they've lost some good players, they gained some good ones as well. Uh, I know fans wanted Marcus Stroman to come back as well. And that really just was never going to happen. Um, the Mets weren't really interested in him and, and he got, you know, more money elsewhere. And he took it with the, with the rebuilding Cubs, I should say. And he got that opt out after the second year too. So um, yeah. So the Mets just, uh, you know, they have something in mind. They brought in Epler and uh, the, I think they're, they're going the right way about it and adding certain players and, and kind of changing the whole, uh, trajectory of the team and uh, yeah I, again like I said before I think it's going to be a pretty good season but um, in no way are they done and no way do I believe that they're done. Last question from here fortunately you've been able to be in a position where you landed at SI and you have some freedom that you alluded to earlier uh, but you also do write about the Giants and I wanted to touch on this before we let you go uh, so it's difficult for somebody who is kind of starting at, at a college to find a writing job. You're, you're basically going from freelance job to freelance job. And a lot of those opportunities and those breaks don't necessarily come to people, you know, five to 10 years well into their career, once their career starts. So luckily you ended up doing that, but you do also write about the giants and with the giants, even though it's on a smaller scale, you kind of maintain that freelance mentality, right? So uh, you both have the, the, you write for the Mets for SI and you write for the Giants from a freelance basis, right? So how do you juggle the time uh, between writing about those two teams? Because obviously the Giants is still kind of more of a side passion than the primary role, which is the Mets. So I spent two and a half years contributing to both teams and looking for, you know, the biggest stories and making connections in both avenues. So, um, you know, getting on with SI with the Mets was, you know, good for me because now it's like, let me kind of focus on a specific niche and kind of be competitive in that aspect. And then the Giants is just more so right now, just from a contributor standpoint. And, you know, I'm writing about the Giants and, and you know, getting paid to do so, fortunately. So, like, that, you know, is, is something I'm grateful for. And then uh, it was definitely a concern of mine because I got the Giants gig in August while the Mets season was still going on. And I was concerned about how I juggle that. But it's not as demanding as running my own site with the Mets. So I'm able to balance and prioritize, you know, in a lot of ways. So... Um, yeah, so with the Giants, like I, I was concerned that I wasn't gonna be able to juggle it, but I've just kind of be, been able to, uh, you know, write when I can about the Giants and kind of prioritize and, and whatever the big stories are coming out and what I want to write on and kind of make a choice there while also keeping my Mets site as active as possible, trying to post content at least every day. So yeah, with the Giants, it just kind of came down to, you know, time management, which I'm still trying to perfect as everyone I'm sure is, but uh, yeah, it's been pretty good and it's been easy and it's actually been um, you know, more almost time consuming now with all the free agency news and rumors and everything else with the Mets offseason and not having that buffer where I'm able to commute to the games and be focusing on one thing when I'm actually physically at a game rather than now I'm sitting in front of a computer all day where I'm writing, I'm going from writing multiple Mets stories or a Mets story than a Giants story. And I also do write about the Yankees actually three times a week for their SI site. Um, so that's, that's three times a set number. And like the Giants is just trying to do as much as possible. Uh, while also, you know, focusing on the Mets, number one, above all else. So, um, yeah, hopefully at some point I'll be able to just do the Mets. But, you know, right now I'm enjoying what I'm doing and, uh, and finding ways to, you know, kind of make time to, you know, balance everything. 
All right, I got one more question and then we'll let you go. But again, this is really, really a lot of fun. We really appreciate Pat, you coming on and doing this with us. A lot of great pieces of information. Uh, I want to ask, who do you think the Yankees shortstop will be on opening day next year? Assuming opening day is played. Well, I really liked Corey Seager for them. I think he would have been a great fit, the left-handed bat, good defensively, really good hitter. Obviously didn't happen. I mean, he got near Lindor money. He got a lot of money. Same with Marcus Semien. Um, but now the Yankees are down to Carlos Correa or Trevor Story, while they also need to extend Aaron Judge probably this up, upcoming spring training because he's entering a contract year. So I keep hearing that the Yankees are looking for a stopgap at shortstop. But if that's the case, I mean, I think the easiest thing for them to do would be to just bring Anthony Rizzo back on like a two or three year deal and then, you know, potentially sign Trevor Story because Correa is going to get over Lindor money. Lindor got the 10 years. 341 mil. Correa is a top five position player in the game right now. He's the best shortstop in the game right now. He's going to be, you know, he's going to get paid heavily. And I'm not sure who's going to give him that contract at this point, but he's deserving of it. So I don't see it being the Yankees, especially with the judge thing coming up. Um, So, yeah. So if it is going to be a stopgap option, because they got Oswald Peraza, who finished the year in AAA, and they got Anthony Volpe, who, you know, was in A ball last year and is a couple of years away. But um, when it comes down to it, I mean, if, if it is going to be Aldrington Simmons or, you know, the, the Kiner, I don't even know how to pronounce his full name, but Kiner from the Rangers, then uh, the way that they're going to sell that to the fans is by acquiring a Matt Olson, which they'd have to trade for because he's obviously a big bat and he's going to cost a lot of assets if they do make that trade. So that's the only way I kind of see it being him. But I think the easiest route for them would be to sign Trevor Story. And uh, maybe to a short-term deal with high annual average, you know, value with making a lot of money, uh, you know, in the short term. And then, uh, you know, potentially having those shortstops ready by the time his contract's up or if it's a long-term deal, moving him to a different position. Because he's only played shortstop in his career, but teams have, you know, kicked the tires on potentially signing him and even still are, you know, signing him to play third base or second base, whatever it might be. So, again, I think for the Yankees, what they need to do is, is probably just bring back Rizzo and maybe sign Story and, uh, that would satisfy the fans and, you know, sell a winning team to them next year. Cause it's really about that too. It's about, you know, can I, can they sell this to the fans? And if they just get Aldrington Simmons and maybe resign Rizzo, I don't really see how they could sell that team to the Yankees fans who are already hysterical that they didn't do anything before the lockout. So. Ain't it the truth. Ain't it the truth. Pat, we give our guests here the last word. So if there's anything else you would like to share, share, promote on your end, go right ahead. Thanks again for doing this with us. We really appreciate it. And once again, it was so much fun. A lot of great stories. Hopefully I see you out in Hoboken and down the shore next year. That'd be a lot of fun. Um, my friends always frequent those places that you mentioned before. So it'd be really, really nice. But again, floor is yours. So if there's anything else you would like to share, promote right ahead. Yeah, well, hopefully we run into each other at DJs at some point. I'm sure we will. We're Wicked Wolf. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess I would just urge everyone to shoot me a follow on Twitter at Regazzo Report, R-A-G-A-Z-Z-O Report. Um, you can find my work at si.com slash MLB slash Mets. Uh, it's the New York Mets site for Sports Illustrated and Fan Nation called Inside the Mets. And uh, yeah, I also do some contributing at Inside the Pinstripes for the Yankees a couple of times a week and uh, contribute to Heavy uh, for their New York Giants uh, page that they have. So yeah, if you're interested in uh, reading up on these teams or you know, following along on Twitter, I, I welcome it. So always fun to engage with the fans and put out meaningful stuff for them to indulge on. All right, Pat, we appreciate your time here today. That's going to do it here for this episode of You Know um, Right for our special guest, 
Power Guys are my co-host, Joe Calabrese. I'm Nick Durst, and this has been You Know I'm Right.